to explore the opportunities and risk of artificial intelligence, please join me in welcoming the distinguished senior fellow at Cap Action and former head of the White House Office of Science and Technology, Dr. Alandra Nelson, together with CEO of Section 32, Andy Harrison, and to moderate this discussion, the chief policy strategist at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, Benedict Macon Cooney. Give them a warm applause. Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Um, we are going to have a deep discussion in a minute on the sort of the opportunities and risks of AI and really digging some of those themes that we pulled out today. Um, I'll introduce this in a bit more depth in a minute, but we're going to start with some opening remarks from Dr. Alondra as well to sort of set the scene a bit before we get into a bit more of the meat. Great. Yeah, well, I'll be quick. I'm looking forward to the conversation with Benedict and Andy and, and uh, great to be here with all of you. And we're well aware that we're standing between you and lunch, so we're going to make it worth your make it worth your time. So, you know, as the last panel suggested, there's a lot of interest in these new technologies. And I also think that this interest, because they were arguably shipped a little bit earlier than they should have been, they became, you know, commercial facing, consumer facing products, which we're talking about generative AI and large language models, um, that they opened up an opportunity for a public conversation uh, about artificial intelligence and tools and systems and what they mean in our communities and our societies in a way that it hadn't existed before. There's a moment of, I think, real uh, attention to AI as a policy issue and as a societal issue and a real opportunity for progressive politics, I think, to have um, a voice and a place. I think that in the midst of the kind of displacements that are happening around us, that there's a, a, a kind of a cause for hope and a cause for action and that this public interest means that people understand that there are kinds of winds of change around them um, being driven by these new technologies. Um, and the challenge that we face, I think, as leaders, as decision makers, as policy makers and, and civil society and government is how to channel this interest of the last 10 months into engagement. How do we um, we're face big decisions and big shifts that cannot be made by technical experts alone? It's going to require leaders and legislators, and it's going to, it's going to require uh, lots of leaders from lots of different communities. And more importantly, it's going to um, require our legislators, our political leaders to be both bold and brave, right? And I think the public's engagement um, in this uh, helps to make that a possibility. So let me say just a little bit about why I think AI governance matters. You know, it, it is, you know, hashtag all the things. Generative AI, advanced AI, it's hardware. It's software. It can be used in specific domains with great specificity. It can be used in a broad set of general uses. This is multi-use, multifaceted, um, potentially general purpose. Therefore, it's likely to impact every facet of society in different ways and, of course, across different time frames. And we need to anticipate and, and prepare for that. This community here, including those of you who never thought that you were tech policy people, AI policy, it's domestic policy, it's national security policy, it's international policy, it's housing policy, it's healthcare policy, it's education policy, it's labor policy, and more. Because it's going to impact everything, and I, and I mean this like sort of free of the hype cycle, I mean this sort of, you know, kind of objectively, it, it will be transformative in society and is already being transformative. Um, we can't be intimidated by the technology or by the technology companies. We can't defer only to AI experts. We've got to engage the policy conversation in a way that doesn't have deference, that obviously must engage technological experts, but I think doesn't defer to them to making important decisions about society. And that means that government, academia, industry, civil society are going to need to work together to manage the risks of AI, 
um, so it can be stewarded for the potential good um, that we hear is coming. These tools have already been a ubiquitous part of our life. Um, in all of the cell phones that you're carrying, the mobile phones you have right now, there's sort of AI pulsing through them. Algorithms structure our social media experiences, our writing, it's how some of us unlock our phones. Um, some of the most exciting things, you know, that I got to see close up in um, my uh, two years in the Biden-Harris administration at the Office of Science and Technology Policy were about AI and basic research. So these are the things I'm most excited about. Um, you know, of course, probably about DeepMind's AlphaFold, um, uh, you know, um, artificial intelligence, which predicts the 3D structure of proteins um, and the sort of exponential way that proteins kind of fold and fold upon themselves and uh, really offers the potential for um, some biological um, breakthroughs and also uh, healthcare applications of those. One of my favorite examples that I go back to again and again um, is uh, the, the double asteroid redetection test or DART um, that was produced by NASA to sort of throw an asteroid that was, you know, pummeling towards Earth and simulation sort of off its axis. So it's effectively a a planetary defense system um, that you might be familiar with from the Don't Look Up um, movie, um, based on you know thousands of hours of simulation, uses of artificial intelligence in that space. I think where we need to be careful is where artificial intelligence tools and systems get closer to us, when they get closer to impacting our access to resources, our access to, to uh, our exercise of our rights, of certain responsibilities, of our liberties. When I was in the Biden administration, um, I led the work of the development of something called the Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which outlined five essential sort of principles with associated practices that should sort of guide the sort of development and deployment of AI tools and systems. Um, that provided guidance. It was written in the very plainest of language, um, not in technical language, um, for civil society, for communities, for legislators and the like, um, and in fact, drew inspiration from the work of some in the room. We chose the Bill of Rights as a concept, as a frame deliberately, uh, because there is a sort of sense in the space of fast moving tech policy that every time there's new technology, you have to have a whole suite of new laws. The Bill of Rights is a kind of foundational commitment and promise and compact of US American democracy. And to turn back to the Bill of Rights is to say, even as these technologies are quickly moving around us, there are enduring rights, enduring things that we can sort of anchor in um, that are important for uh, uh, how we think about the governance of even the newest and most emergent technologies. And these are just common sense things. Systems should be safe and effective. The public should have some modicum of data privacy. We should be protected from algorithmic discrimination. Um, uh, there should be consent, notice and consent when uh, AI is, is used in, uh, in systems that people are using. And particularly when dealing with people's rights or services or social welfare issues, um, that there should be human fallback, that you should have some uh, ability to uh, ask questions about decisions that have been made that impact your access to rights, to resources, to opportunities. So I just want to highlight three um, types of risks and harms that I'm particularly concerned about, and I know um, others will come up in the conversation. Um, algorithmic discrimination and bias, which was raised in the last panel, employment disruption, and democratic erosion more generally that we also discussed. Um, the, the use of advanced automated technologies, for example, um, in the criminal legal system in the United States for so-called predictive policing, um, affects people's lives and liberties. There's disproportionate impacts in the United States on black and brown communities and on communities of color. Uh, we have accounts of, of people who have like lost their homes, lost their jobs, 
um, based have been arrested falsely um, based on the use of these tools and systems, often with little recourse. It's also the case that we've got a challenge of health discrimination because in some instances, this is historical data um, that is sort of porting into the present um, historical discrimination. So some well-known research that's done by Zia um, Obermeyer and others you know, suggests that some algorithms use um, healthcare costs. So who has uh, spent the most on healthcare in the past as a proxy for um, illness, right? What that means in a context of the United States and a for-profit healthcare system is actually that you're not more likely to be ill, um, but that you just have more money to spend on healthcare. And so it creates um, compounding inequality and certain algorithms are, are being told that there should be where our healthcare investments are going. So what can be done? Existing laws in our country, um, uh, you know, must be rigorously enforced. Existing laws that already outlaw discrimination in healthcare, that already outlaw discrimination uh, and, and housing and real estate and the like. Um, and this is something that the, the AI Bill of Rights tries to cover. On the matter of employment disruption, Patrick earlier raised the auto workers um, uh, uh, strike. Uh, you know, I've been very interested in sort of tracking and engaging the screen workers strike and the and the writer strike um, and and the United States, um, in part because these are historic worker struggles, um, in part because they're specifically about generative AI, and I think that probably will be that kind of as the history books are written about this moment, the first sort of coordinated worker action and response to the ways that AI are changing um, what work means. I I was um, watching an interview with um, with uh, Biz Stone from 2018 um, in preparation for another conversation that I had at Dreamforce earlier in the week in San Francisco, and uh, one of the founders of Twitter. And in 2018, he was saying, "There's going to be all the jobs are going to be disrupted. There's not going to be any jobs." And so here we are, five years later, and I just was struck by the sort of sense of self fulfilling prophecy, as opposed to, to five years ago saying. What are we going to do to make sure that AI is augmenting jobs, to make sure that we're creating a buffer for people, that we're just not predicting that displacement is going to happen and, and this disruption is going to happen, and feeling just like that's okay? I think this is a tremendous opportunity to sort of reframe that conversation, to really demand government uh, to work as it does, as a ballast and as a buffer, um, to think in different ways about reskilling and upskilling other sorts of things that can happen so we don't have to do that. We've already talked about democratic erosion, so I won't spend a lot of time there. But obviously, deep fakes, voice clones, um, you know, political advertising, a flood of more mis- and disinformation, I think, uh, awaits us. And potentially the use of uh, chatbots, um, if people are asking questions about referenda or about certain, um, you know, political things that are happening, uh, at, you know, uh, elections and other things. Um, uh, in their communities um, with uh, sort of inaccuracies and misinformation there. There's the potential of not even intended misinformation being conveyed to voters and people are asking about elections in their communities. So there are more developments to come in the broader field of artificial intelligence. Um, I think policymakers, people in civil society, too often regard these new technologies uncritically, thinking that they are constrained by the novelty of the object, kind of where I began, um, and that there's a kind of awe or a false sense that new technologies always need new laws, you know, that, that we need to create the whole social world anew around them. Um, I'd like to suggest to you as we end that there are things that we can already, that we must act. There are things that we can already do. 
Um, and that position of, uh, of awestruckness is just not tenable or advisable um, in the space of, of political action and policy action. The new technologies don't render existing laws and regulations obsolete, um, but they require us to, to give them creative attention um, to how we apply uh, existing laws. We don't want our legislators to be rash, um, but we do hope that we as a society can learn from the failures of the recent past, where in action in the social media era, certain in the United States, um, has left us with a society littered with risks and harms to communities um, and institutions that we thought were durable and unassailable are coming under um, attack and erosion, including our very democracies. I think if we first ask what type of society we want as a, the, one of the first questions of AI governance, as opposed to like, what do we do with AI the object? We're reminded that when we think about guardrails and talk about guardrails, what we're fundamentally protecting are freedoms, privacy, opportunities, and rights, right? Um, that's what regulation is intended or governance uh, as the case may be is intended to get us. Um, uh, to wrap up, I think a shift in sort of how we think about the orientation or a philosophy is crucial. We need to develop alternative visions of others, as others have said, about the appropriate place of automated tools and systems, AI, generative AI, um, uh, in American society or in society broadly. These systems are potentially mighty, um, but they remain tools of our own making. Their uses are not preordained, their effects are not inevitable. Um, it's critical that we begin the work of building this cooperation. I'm so delighted to be uh, in this room uh, to start that conversation and begin that work with all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That, um, I mean, comes a lot of really interesting ground. And maybe I'll just pick up on one thing that you said at the beginning, because it almost set the frame, which is AI will impact everything. And I think that within that, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. And I think for those of us in the sort of progressive tradition of politics, there's you know a huge amount of opportunity that we can think about. And David Miliband this morning talked about the sort of the deficit um, of delivery earlier. And I think that from our perspective, one of the huge opportunities that AI gives you is an ability to make our institutions better. We talk a lot about protecting them, re restoring trust, but we don't talk enough about how we make them better. And I think AI gives us that opportunity today. And so maybe Andy, just from your perspective, someone that's at the sort of the coalface of developing this and you know, whether that's in life sciences, right through to climate, where do you see these huge opportunities? Yeah, uh, our firm invests in uh, young AI companies. And so uh, we're on the more optimistic side uh, as it relates to how these uh, technologies can um, impact things, especially healthcare and climate. Um, some of our companies are working on uh, problems like um, next generation antibody design, uh, taking the work from AlphaFold and using it for new uh, mRNA structural and functional analysis, uh, all the way to uh, one of our companies, uh, Phaedra, who is famous at DeepMind for reducing the power consumption of our one of our data centers by 30 to 40 percent just by running an AI algorithm on top of it. And now they're working with uh, top uh, REITs, uh, data center REITs from across the world to, to do the same. Um, a very good climate technology. You don't have to buy any new equipment. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to finance it. You just have to run the algorithm over it. And so, um, you know, there's a variety of uh, startups out there that are not only trying to do things that are really impactful um, in, in health and in, in climate and in other areas, um, but they're, um, you know, they're uh, challenging incumbents also. And, uh, and so there's a, 
a very rich um, uh, group of people out there working to try to do very positive things with this technology. And we're starting to see that uh, ripple through drug discovery. We're starting to see it ripple through um, the way people can manage their own uh, disease now, like in diabetes and, and um, in atrial fibrillation and other, um, other big areas of health. And so, um, you know, I, I truly believe that these things are, you know, these technologies are incredibly important. And, uh, you know, I think regulation uh, is also equally important, um, but we have to make sure that the regulation doesn't just favor the incumbents, uh, that these startups have the ability to compete uh, with these larger players um, because uh, the work they're doing, they obviously left a lot of these big organizations to do, uh, and they can do so uh, in a way where they can make an impact without um, being beholden to these uh, larger incumbents and their agendas. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, even sort of listening to the conversation before this a bit, um, some of the conversations that we had, I think there's sometimes a conversation that sort of creates sort of big tech as the sort of the bogeyman and sort of they're doing bad things. And there is, a, you know, there is some things that we need to always contend with the challenges. But I wonder how do we sometimes begin to think about, and maybe from your perspective as you know, working in Silicon Valley, how do you reconstruct that conversation between those that are developing some of these transformative technologies and those who are in government who are often having to deal with some of the, the challenges of it to actually a more constructive sort of co-creation uh, that actually has very strong social objectives as well? Yeah, I think a lot of it uh, is about aligned interests. I think you have to look for places where um, where the two, where the two are aligned. I, I think um, there is some alignment around transparency. Uh, I think there's a lot of concerns out there about transparency in AI, and I think there's a, a really good reason for that. I mean, uh, the, the the creation of deep fakes, right? A tech has a role in creating those, but they also have a role in defending us from them. Um, you know, as uh, some of our startups uh, work on detection of deep fakes, some of them work on watermarking techniques so we can tell synthetic data from real data. You know, I'm a, a father of, of two children, and uh, I thought my big concern was going to be teaching them fact from, you know, from, from fiction, and instead it's going to be teaching them real from synthetic, right? And that's a very big concern of mine. And so, uh, but we have cryptographic techniques for watermarking, for uh, for making sure that uh, data can be identified as either as created or not created. So, so I think there are places where you know tech has a, a role both on offense in terms of capturing opportunity, but also on defense, protecting us and in, in cybersecurity, protecting us against uh, deepfakes and and other areas. And we, uh, you know, at, at our firm have a feel we have a responsibility to invest in both sides. And uh, luckily, there's also a market for both sides. So there's alignment uh, in terms of, uh, you know, tackling those issues. Yeah. Uh, and maybe one of the other things that I think politicians particularly s struggle with, with technologies that are particularly on exponential growth, like AI at the moment, and the pace of change is both exciting, but can be quite overwhelming and for the public alike. I mean, from your perspective, having been in the White House, how do you think governments need to get better at just, you know, working at the kind of the pace at which technology is developing today and being more agile in actually adopting and understanding and then ultimately mastering it as well? Yeah, I, I don't. So I would say I don't think government needs to work at the pace of technology, but I yeah. think it needs to be more agile. So we need to appreciate that part of the disruption model of business is actually to skirt regulation and to make government behind, right? So it's by design. So it's not like 
oh, you know, Uber has gotten by these taxi medallions in New York City that people have like invested their entire lives in, like, oops, government's behind. No, it's like the, the actual business model um, is to skirt regulation and to skirt government. And so in that, you have equilibrium that's sort of upset by the disruptive business model. And I think government plays in the, in the equilibrium moment, a sort of ballasting, anchoring moment. And then when the disruption occurs and like innovation and interesting things are happening in the business space, the role of government is to me not to sort of be in tandem with the technology, but to restore a kind of societal balance or a ballast, right? I mean, one of the things we heard this morning was uh, from uh, one of the colleagues who was doing the polling data was that people have crises throughout their lives. And then they've got now the AI crisis and the climate crisis and the whatever. And I think it's really incumbent upon government to sort of say like, there's a there's a middle here that holds and it's based in uh, these kind of core bedrock values that whether or not it's, you know, AI or, you know, someone sitting across from you from the desk that like you shouldn't be discriminated against in the job place or, or those sorts of things. So then so I write, you know, I've been writing, trying to write about policy innovation, which is to say it's also the case that government needs to sort of figure out how its existing rules and regulations and authorities apply in a new space and not just sort of be doe-eyed looking at the, the new technology. And I think where the big innovation can come and where government can be more agile is actually, um, you know, Tim O'Reilly uh, had this, this essay 15 years ago called Government as Platform, right, which was more of a kind of not keeping a pace, but sort of mirroring the structure so that government and policymakers can become more iterative, right? Like that government. So, um, you know, Majority Leader Schumer in an interview, I think, in the New York Times about the AI Insight Forum this week said, oh, the, the EU AI Act, look at it, it's already behind. And I think there's a different, so maybe, but it's also the case that I think the EU has said, like, this is actually not right sized and we're going to fix it. And I think there needs to be a different kind of frame for government, which is like, okay, we're going to like iterate on this and sort of change it up as opposed to, this is the one law for all time that does the thing. I, it, with new and emerging technologies, AI and others, that's just not an, a, a, the way you can approach policymaking. Uh, yeah, and I know we're holding people up for lunch for a bit. So just maybe just to wrap things up, Andy, I'll let you have yep. the last word. There's sometimes big debates, the, the wild variation between existential risk, you know, utopia and dystopia. Uh, what are the things that really just excite you about the next couple of years from a sort of technologist perspective? Well, I think that the the, the thing that excites me the, the most is the thing that also creates the anxiety, which is the flywheel spinning between ever better modeling, ever faster uh, chipsets and ever cheaper storage. And this is uh, creating uh, hyperbolic growth in AI. And I think that's where the anxiety comes from, because I think we can extrapolate, extrapolate linearly um, but, you know, when one thing's a power law and one thing's linear, by the time you get to a sense that you know what's going on, the whole, the whole system has changed. And so uh, that's what creates the anxiety, but it also is what's creating the, the technology that's impacting these areas. We couldn't have done some of this work in mRNA or, or AlphaFold without these developments. Like, we, we, um, we couldn't have done this climate work uh, around AI algorithms and energy consumption. Uh, uh, without this change, some of the work we're doing in cybersecurity now involves uh, just an incredible amount of data. We just couldn't have processed it uh, a year and a half ago. So, um, so I think that flywheel spinning uh, it 
creates anxiety, but it creates an incredible opportunity where we have a new set of tools and applied to the right problems or applied against the right risks. Uh, I think, um, you know, we're going to see some some positive change. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think applied in the right way, if government can think about that, yeah, the ability to begin to harness that and think about how you drive down the cost of public services whilst also improving outcomes and creating that continual cycle of of learning and reinforcement and you know better outcomes i think that's you know the, the, the positive vision that we'd like to to aim for and hopefully end with so thank you very much